My MBA changed my professional and personal life, I would say, more than I originally expected. So if you ask me before, I, before going to the MBA, what are you going to do after this? I would have probably told you, look, I'm going to come back to McKinsey in Italy and I may you know, become a partner at McKinsey in Italy. And uh, in reality, things went a little bit differently. And, um, uh, and the MBA contributed very strongly in it. Welcome to the MBA Jam Podcast with your host, Avinash Bajaj. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the MBA Jam. This is your host, Avinash. Today, we are talking to someone who's no stranger to talking to wide audience and to the media. If you search for him, you will see a lot of great interviews. Today, we have Michele Ferrario with us. Michele is the co-founder and CEO of Stash Away. Based in Singapore, um, which is Southeast Asia's financial epicenter, Stashaway is committed to transform and lead the wealth management industry throughout all of APAC. I will let Michele explain Stashaway in more detail uh, as we go along because I'm pretty sure he'll do a better job than me. Prior to founding Stashaway, Michele spent the first half of his career in around the financial industry and the second part of his career focusing on using internet to provide customers with better services, such as Stashaway. Michele was a group CEO of Zalora, Southeast Asia's largest fashion e-commerce platform, where he was responsible for leading a team of 1,500 plus people across eight countries. In the process, he grew the company 15x to make it the undisputed leader in the market. Before Zalora, Michele founded the Italian and Pakistani operations of Rocket Internet, launching five companies in these two countries. From 2004 to 2012, Michele worked primarily in the financial industry, first as a consultant at McKinsey, where he served primarily financial institutions, then in Milan-based private equity fund manager, Synergio. Michele earned his MBA at Columbia Business School, and his Bachelor of Science at Bocconi University in Italy. Michele has been invited by Singapore's Minister of Finance to be a member of the Committee for the Future of the Economy. Michele, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Avinash. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that was like an amazing, you know, and sounded like an amazing and exciting career so far. How would you like to describe your thought process along this journey in your own words? Uh, look, I think that there is a famous quote uh, from Steve Jobs saying that it's uh, impossible to connect the dot looking forward. You can only do that looking backward. And I feel uh, it's particularly true for me. So I, I really uh, I can see that where the quote come from, meaning that if you ask me, I don't know, five years ago, if you know where I thought I was going to be five years later, for sure, I would have not told you I'll be in Singapore uh, trying to give consumers in in the in Asia uh, better financial services and help them reach their financial goals sooner. I don't think that was something I had in mind. I think one thing led to the other over time uh, and uh, and really now again looking back it's easy to to find the various learnings of the different experiences that brought me where I am today uh, but it would be it would have been very difficult to actually plan it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, that was one of the questions I had in mind, you know, because you are from Italy and from Italy to Singapore. Now, that's a long way away from home for you. <laughs> so just it wanted is, to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened is, uh, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, in the kind of uh, at a certain point, uh, what I call the second part of my career started and I left private equity and joined a company called Rocket Internet. Uh, this was in late 2011. Uh, Rocket at the time uh, was expanding globally and uh, in, included in Europe. Uh, it's a German company. And they asked me to found the Italian office. So I left private equity, opened the Italian office of Rocket. And over the course of my first year with Rocket, um, my responsibility has been originally to launch new companies in it, new companies in Italy, and then I was asked to also uh, take responsibility of Pakistan together with my uh, co-founder. So we uh, we started also launching companies in Pakistan. And after about a year, um, Rocket asked me if I wanted to move to Singapore and take the leadership of Zalora, which was a company they had started 
around eight to ten months before uh, before they asked me to 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 move. Uh, and they had a lack of leadership, and, and they wanted to, uh, you know, get me as uh, as as the group CEO of that company. So it really happened a little bit by chance. Again, I joined Rocket with an Italian mandate, and that that mandate was expanding to Pakistan, and that uh, and that it was changed to uh, to go from uh, launching multiple companies uh, from a Rocket Internet perspective to actually focusing on one only, Zalora and managing and growing that company, uh, which is something I've done for the last uh, four years until a year ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so taking a few steps back, so, you know, you, you finished your bachelor's and then I think, I, I believe you started working in McKinsey pretty much soon after you finished your bachelor's? Yeah, I actually did an internship when I was still a student. This is a, when I was a bachelor student, I had a very clear idea that I wanted to do consulting. Uh, so, uh, so I had a real, you know, one objective, which was, you know, joined McKinsey and things went well. So I was able to do that. I joined McKinsey and um, in certain countries, uh, including Italy, obviously, uh, McKinsey has this program for which after two years as an analyst, uh, if you kind of get promoted to the next level, that promotion starts with uh, with an MBA. So uh, I was sponsored uh, an MBA and that's uh, that's why uh, I kind of left McKinsey for a year and a half, uh, went to Columbia, did my MBA there, and then rejoined McKinsey. I see, I see. Because because what I was wondering is, why did you decide to rejoin McKinsey? I did not realize it was sponsored. So, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so the situation was uh, uh, was exactly what, what, I, what, what you just repeated, which is uh, McKinsey has this program for which, uh, now, I don't know if it's still true, but at the time, Everybody that was promoted from business analyst position uh, in Italy uh, got a sponsorship for for an MBA, and uh, and that's what I've done. The one thing that I've done differently, though, is that in theory I was required to go back to Italy, uh, while uh, as I was uh, at uh, at Columbia, I felt in love with New York, and therefore asked McKinsey to be transferred to the New York office. It was not a super easy process. I actually had to go through the full interview process for for new, for the oh, new wow. york office but luckily i got through so i got so mckinsey the milan office accepted my transfer the new york new york office made an made an offer and so i rejoined mckinsey in a different office and and things worked uh, worked well yeah i see i see so so once you did your mba you know if you were not um you know obliged to go back to mckinsey after your mba would you still have done it I, it's a good question. Um, I so during my MBA, uh, the one thing that I, the, the one big question mark I had in my mind was around private equity. So <clears throat> when I when I went for my MBA, uh, the the one que- professional question I wanted to answer was, do I want to stay in McKinsey long term or do I want to go and do private equity? That that what I had in mind at the time. So that's going back to what we discussed earlier. I definitely didn't have in in mind to go to Singapore and uh, launch a startup. Uh, but what uh, what happened is that during my MBA, I did an internship in a private equity, private equity uh, shop for one year. And that's one of the advantages of being in New York. <clears throat> and at the end, I rejoined McKinsey. Maybe the answer to your question is, if I didn't have a bond to McKinsey, maybe I would have tried to do uh, to, to join a private equity shop at the end of the at the end of the MBA. I see. I see. Yeah, that's that's really interesting um, because you know I've done my MBA and I had a few um, people in my class who were actually sponsored in a very similar manner that you were sponsored. The one question which I had, even to them, I never asked them, but I'm going to ask you is, <laughs> you know, when when a company sponsors you to do the MBA, how about the MBA experience? Does that pigeonhole you into the perspective that you are anyway going back to the company, so you start? you know, focusing on classes and courses that suit you to improving yourself in that company? Or do you actually go with an open mind that um, you're, you're willing to explore anything that comes your way? What, what was your view on that? So I think it depends from person to person. My personal view was definitely to explore. And, uh, you know, I was very young. I only had two years of experience. And I knew that I had to, you know, I was at the very beginning of my career. And therefore, I knew that I needed to learn more and uh, across a wide spectrum of topics. And uh, in reality, yes, I did have a bond, but if I wanted to leave, I could have. I just, ha- I would have 
what I needed, what I would have needed to do was just pay back McKinsey. So it was not impossible. Uh, it was it was still possible. Um, and and uh, my suggestion to people going to an MBA sponsored is to keep an open mind and uh, potentially make a decision to rejoin the company that sponsored. But during the MBA time, really explore different opportunities and think about what else is out there and what else could be interesting. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, because you were in McKinsey and, and you got promoted, that's almost like, um, you know, a, a seat into the MBA. Would you have considered MBA if you were not um, given this option by McKinsey? Would you have considered on your own at all? So I come from Italy and uh, in Italy, the MBA is not, at least when I did it, so 15 years ago, uh, was not uh, something very common. So I don't, I didn't know a lot of people that have done an MBA before I joined McKinsey. So most probably, if I didn't join McKinsey, most probably I would have not even known about the idea of going to, of doing an MBA. Once I joined McKinsey, everybody that was an associate or a manager or a partner had an MBA. So it kind of became obvious that I needed to do an MBA. It was kind of, a, you know, at the end of the game, the... <clears throat> The environment in which you live really shapes your thinking. And uh, my environment was an environment of people that have done an MBA. And therefore, it felt normal to go to an MBA. Yeah. I don't know what would, have, what would have happened if I didn't join a company like McKinsey. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point that you touch upon that because I'm from India. And, you know, when you're in India, it's it's like MBA almost the default path once you finish your engineering and, and once you're working for a couple of years in any company. It doesn't matter which industry or company you work in. So that's why I did my MBA. But, um, you know, when I came to the UK, now I've been in the UK for a long time. And actually, it's very similar. Uh, the MBA is not... Um, expected or not very common over here in fact most of the people i'm interviewing uh, even for the podcast a lot of them are you know have either done mba in the us or they've done in some other places instead of done mba in the uk so i guess i guess not just in italy but i guess throughout europe it's it's something doesn't have to be a necessary you know expectation to get a promotion or to work in a leadership position would you would you would you agree with that? Absolutely, and I'll tell you I'll I'll, I'll go one step further. And uh, uh, in Italy, I don't think there is a lot of companies that actually reward the MBA from a monetary perspective. Therefore, I believe that unless you are planning to work, if you if you want to work in Italy, and I'm giving a very specific example, but I guess it's true in other countries as well. But if you want to work in Italy after your MBA. Unless you want to work in a consulting firm or maybe in a bank or maybe in you know professional shops like private equity or a few others, you're not going to find a lot of companies that are willing to pay the salaries of, of a typical post MBA. And therefore, it's going to be very difficult to justify from an economic perspective the investment you've made on an MBA. Yeah. Yeah, no, true. I, I completely agree with that point. And in fact, even if you talk about the consulting firms, a lot, a lot of them are very um, uh, US uh, influenced, right? So that's why I think the MBA influence comes from there as opposed to an actual requirement to be good at your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. True, true, absolutely great. Great. So yeah, so you went back to McKinsey and, and you worked there. How long did you work for McKinsey after your MBA before you decided to move on? A bit less than two years. So what happened is that when I was, uh, as I mentioned, during my MBA, I was trying to understand whether I wanted to do private equity or not. And I did an internship in private equity uh, part time for 12 months during the MBA. And uh, I kind of liked it. I thought it was an interesting space. Um, and uh, toward uh, the end of the MBA, I got contacted by an Italian private equity firm working, ma- making middle market growth equity investments in Italy. And I thought that was the space that I liked. So we started conversation and uh, we, we had an open, open conversation for a couple of years. And at a certain point, uh, a couple of years after, my, after I finished my MBA, they asked, they told me, look, we have an open position and we would like you to join uh, and I thought this was a one, you know, a unique opportunity. There's not many private equity shops like that in Italy. And I thought it's now or never. And even if it was a little bit earlier 
than I probably would have planned to uh, leave McKinsey and leave New York and go back to Italy. Uh, I thought I should. Uh, the right decision was to actually, you know, get, try to accept the offer and move back to Italy and 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 take the, take advantage of the opportunity. So I joined a company called Synergo, which now manages around a billion, and uh, you know, as a private equity investment manager. So my job was to on one side make new investments for for the fund, and on the other side. Uh, there were a few portfolio companies and I was assigned a couple and my job was to work alongside the management to make sure that uh, the companies were you know, in good shape and growing and, and improving their financials. And obviously those were tough years because this was 2009, 10 and 11. So this was uh, obviously very deep crisis, particularly in Italy. So it was a very, very useful experience. Uh, again, being alongside the CEOs and entrepreneurs that we were backing and seeing how they could uh, make the company work in such a difficult environment, uh, understanding you know the value of cash, for instance, and uh, working with the banks on financing. I think these are all things that <clears throat> now, looking back, uh, have been very helpful. Right, right. So how, how was your experience at Synergo as compared to your expectation? Uh, look, it was um, it was similar to expectation. The one big difference was that when I decided to join, it was pre Lehman, and so my expectation was that my job was going to be eighty percent New Deal and twenty percent uh, portfolio management, uh, and then I joined after Lehman, uh, which means that there was much less new activity and much more work on portfolio companies. So it was more twenty eighty was a. Uh, uh, a bit more similar to what I was doing at McKinsey in terms of um, type of type of topics I was touching upon. Uh, so in that sense, it was not exactly what I was uh, expecting. But overall, it was uh, three years where I learned things that I would have not learned in McKinsey or in consulting in general. Things like uh, you know uh, how to read a contract, or how to understand a contract, how to negotiate a contract. Things like how to manage cash. And why is cash so important? So it's really more operational things, uh, kind of top management operational topics that it's difficult to uh, learn unless you are in such a position. So I was sitting on board of directors, therefore I was getting that exposure. Uh, so it was very helpful. I see, I see, I see. So you worked there for three uh, around three years, and then I see you you started as a co-founder in, in another company called Desktop Remoto. That was in Italy, and I was doing some research. Did, I think you started with your brother. Yeah, this was. I mean, to be honest, that's my my brother's company. I helped him. Uh, you know, I, I a few. You know, very much part time. I helped him get uh, get up and running. Uh, but this is this is my co- my my brother's company. I only have. I only had a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, I spent a little bit of time in the beginning trying to help him, help him on administrative tasks and think about strategy, etc. But uh, he's, it's a tech company. My brother is a developer, and that's a company he built and is currently continuing building uh, successfully. Yeah, yeah. So, was it at that point of time that you started to think about moving away from finance um, into into something else? No, to be honest, no. Meaning that I was not thinking about doing anything else. What happened is that a former colleague of mine from McKinsey in New York uh, called me and say that, telling me that um, she was working now at uh, Rocket Internet out of Russia. She was Ger- she's German, and that she uh, she was asking me if I knew anybody that was interested in uh, launching a new company in Italy uh, on behalf of Rocket Internet. Uh, the company was uh, Westwing, the Westwing Group. And uh, so I gave her a couple of names, and then a couple of days later, I, I've asked her, so can you tell me more? Maybe I'm interested myself. And um, so sent my CV, and uh, kind of a she forwarded to the right people, and I got the call back saying, forget about uh, the project we were you were discussing. Let's talk about a bigger project, which is actually opening an op, a rock, rocket office. And uh, so the discussion was actually very quick. And uh, I thought it was, I thought it was something that I really wanted to do. And it took me a few days to make a decision and join Rocket. And in fact, my first project was to launch the Italian subsidiary of West Wing, which is called Dalani, Dalani.it, 
uh, find, you know, hiring the founding team and helping them get off the ground. Now, the reason why I was so positive about, you know, switching from uh, from Synergo to Rocket um, is that I thought both at McKinsey as well as in private equity that I was 10 years late to the game. I thought at McKinsey in Italy, the right time to be there was the early 90s. And I was there in the early 2000s. And uh, because in the early 90s, it was a smaller office. They were, you know, it was a more strategic, higher level. And uh, in early 2000s, it was still a fantastic place. And I owe everything to McKinsey. And I, and I can only recommend it to anybody. But still, it was not as... My my perception was on it was not as elite as and as good uh, as as it used to be, and when I joined uh, private equity, again I thought I was uh, maybe not ten but six seven eight years too late. Meaning that people that have joined private equity in the late late nineties early two thousand versus me joining in two thousand and nine uh, in Italy again I'm talking about Italy. Um, uh, I thought that the right moment was earlier when the industry was still unknown, still growing, and therefore um, career responsibilities were faster. So when Rocket Internet came knocking at the door, I thought it was the opportunity to be ahead of the wave, to ride the wave rather than be following it. And uh, and in Italy in particular, Italy is a very late internet country. So in 2000 and late 2011, early 2012, uh, it was still very early. And I thought this is the chance to make to be ahead of the curve and actually make things happen that uh, and then kind of drive a new industry. And that's why I did it. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see. And from what I understand, uh, you can correct me if it's wrong, right or wrong. Rocket Internet is another company that values MBAs a lot. Right. Because I, I do see that that also being a trend that a lot of their managing directors uh, of the companies they form are, actually do have an MBA. It may not be a coincidence. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, Rocket uh, Rocket hires MBA. You're right. Rocket hires MBA. Rocket hires a lot of consultants and a lot of consultants have an MBA. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, Rocket also hires, uh, you know, bankers. So yes, uh, I think uh, Rocket, I, can, I cannot name a statistic, honestly, but I would by... I would tell you yes, there are quite a few MBAs at Rocket. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think it makes sense as to why your motivation, you know, you like the opportunity. Um, what about on the other side of Rocket Internet? Why did they decide to, you know, offer this to you? Because you did not really have any prior experience in running businesses. So, what did they see in you that that made them, you know, offer you the opportunity? Look, uh, in general, Rocket tends to hire doesn't doesn't hire people that have uh, direct startup experience, or or better said, doesn't only hire people that have internet experience. They hire a lot of people from consulting, banking, and private equity type of backgrounds. And what they're looking for is uh, somebody that they think that they think is smart, uh, somebody that can uh, uh, not only be analytical uh, but also be uh, ha- have some uh, uh, leadership and uh, sales capabilities, and uh, they probably thought I, I was well-rounded in that sense, and that's why I got the offer. I see, I see. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I think you're right. They, they look for smart people because, and and plus, you know, at, I don't know how it was at that point of time, but I do remember Rocket Internet going through like a massive controversial phase where. Um, they were blamed for copying some of the most popular models and operationalizing at massive scale. I think it's a brilliantly smart concept, um, but they did end up in a lot of controversy. Was it during the period when you were working at that point of time? Well, look, this is uh, a little bit rocket business model is uh, what is called geographical arbitrage. So mm-hmm. look at opportunity, look at you know what consumers demand globally and look at pocket of uh, you know, geographical pockets where that has not been developed yet and uh, and find opportunities there. I think the whole discussion about copycats, etc., is honestly out of place. Uh, you, you know, uh, if you open in a coffee shop, you're not copycatting, you know, in neither Starbucks nor Italian cafes. Uh, if you, you know, so I don't think it's 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 really a discussion worth even even going through. I think it's uh, the reality is that the value 
of a company is probably zero point something percent in the idea and ninety nine point nine percent in actually making it happen in execution. And that's particularly true when you start doing it in frontier market, you know, in Nigeria or in Pakistan or in Southeast Asia or in Brazil. Uh, and uh, and I think the value is really making things happen. Honestly, the idea of, you know, let me give you the specific example of, uh, uh, of for instance, fashion e-commerce. The idea of selling fashion online, I don't think you can call it a copycat. I think it's a, you know, it's an idea. Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, then, you know, one thing is thinking about it. The other thing is setting up a company that does it in Pakistan or sorry, a company that does it in Indonesia, company that does it in Vietnam, company that does it in Brazil, in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I completely agree with that. In fact, in fact, what I love about the the concept the rock internet operates is, I think I think I heard you say that in one of the interviews as well. So it's not like a band of people starting as a garage company, right? They they start off with a big vision and they start off on a massive scale, like thousand plus people to begin with. That means they they keep operation and scale at the forefront rather than you know, testing and validating the idea because it's not a concept that definitely needs validation. So not every startup needs to go through an MVP phase. Sometimes you just need to start thinking big. <laughs> yes, and I think in certain industries, that's the only way to be successful because uh, uh, because time is limited and therefore uh, there's going to be competition in certain industries and the only way to be the winners is really be the faster. And then... Uh, that's not true in everything, but in and particularly maybe not true in more frontier ideas or frontier technologies. Uh, but when you when you look at again basic ideas such as sell fashion online, sell uh, you know electronics online, uh, food delivery or things like this, s- starting quick quickly with the right resources, strong team from the get go. Uh, and 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 a vision that is already uh, quite uh, quite clear helps get there faster and be and increase the probability of actually getting there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you started Rocket Internet, I think, I think around February 2012. But then in November 2012, you actually became the CEO of Zalora. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how that process went about? <laughs> Yeah, so the, the short description of that process is that I received a phone call from uh, Oliver Samuel, who's the, the founder of Rocket Internet, and uh, he asked me if I, if, if I wanted to move to Singapore, and uh, that was, I remember it was in Pakistan, it was a Friday, and, um, and on Monday, so two days later, I said yes, and, on, uh, and four or five days later, the end of that week, I was in Singapore. So it was, I wouldn't call it a process <laughs> of a rushed, uh, rushed decision, but uh, it was, uh, no, it was uh, jokes aside, it was, uh, it was an obvious opportunity to do something big and meaningful in a large area. And, um, and together with my co-founder of Rocket Internet, Tito, who uh, also uh, moved with me uh, to Singapore and is, is still with Zalora, we decided that we thought that this was a, a, an incredible opportunity uh, and and the right thing. And uh, during the weekend, I had discussed it with my wife, and uh, she was very supportive. Uh, she was a lawyer in Italy, and uh, she kind of dropped her her job and uh, moved with me to Singapore a couple of months later. And uh, and since then, this was uh, five years ago. Since then, we've been happy in Singapore. We have two kids that were born in Singapore, and things have been going well. Wow, you know, that that's really inspiring because what I was wondering is whether you still had a family back then, but you did have a wife and you actually made a decision in less than two days. That That's that's really cool. <laughs> I honestly, I, the credit goes to her. I mean, she was uh, she was amazing in backing me up in the decision and uh, kind of supporting supporting our, you know, our family plans this way. And uh, uh, obviously without her, it would have not happened. Yeah, absolutely. But how much did you know about Zelora before that? I mean... Yeah, you were at Rocket Internet, but did Zalora exist or start before you went there, or did it actually start when you went there? No, Zalora existed already. Actually, it was already live. Uh, the, Zalora went live between February and April 2012 in uh, in each country. So it has been it had been live for like seven eight months in every country when I joined. Uh, I knew quite a bit about it because uh, again, one was one of the large investment of. Uh, 
of Rocket at the time, and I was part of Rocket, so I was also involved in the mm. in the global calls, uh, you know, of all the co-founders. So I, I was I was uh, I knew quite a bit about it, and also because I actually had recruited people from uh, from Italy and uh, through a program that we used to be called Global Venture Development Program. Uh, and um, and send them to uh, to Southeast Asia. And so a few people that I had recruited actually were working for Zalora. Um, it was one of the rocket program at uh, at that, that period of time. So I knew quite a bit about it. I see, I see, I see. And 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 I guess you know your due diligence skills over private investment and in private equity, you know, all of that skills must have been really helpful for you to make a decision that quickly without having to go through the due diligence all over. <laughs> But, you know, the reality is that, that there was not much due diligence, meaning that this is, uh, you know, you need to believe in the story. It's yeah. not that you, you, you don't look at the books, right? You believe in the story. The story is, do you believe that in Southeast Asia people will buy fashion online and that right now, today, there's nobody doing it? And therefore, there is an opportunity to build, uh, to build that player. And do you believe that Zalora, backed by Rocket, is well positioned to make it happen? And... Uh, after you know a year at Rocket, I knew how things worked, and I, I thought I, I believe in that idea. Nice, nice, great. So, how did your theory match with the on-the-ground reality when you landed in Singapore? Uh, when I landed in Singapore, there was a lot of things to do, <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, uh, Zalora was already a large company from a from a cost and infrastructure perspective. It had more than a thousand employees already. And a thousand employees hired in uh, you know seven eight months, as you can imagine, there was not a lot of processes and structure. So it was uh, it was on one side a, a scale up, on the other side also there was a lot of work to be done on uh, you know creating the company. So that's what we did for the following four years, um, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. It was an amazing experience. The team uh, we the team was super strong and. Uh, we, the, the team that is still there is, uh, you know, made up of amazing people. That some of which were already there, some others we hired along the way, and um, no, it was an amazing experience. I, I only lo- I look back and I'm very proud of what we've done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one of the big stories is, of course, you know, how you scaled up the company um, by up to 15x and for the top line. How did you do it? Do you have any like top tips? Um, how to do it i know it's a very wide question but is there are there any key takeaways you got from that look it was a zalora's growth especially in the early days was very much marketing driven while maybe the second part was uh, we tried to make it a bit more product driven and um the, the takeaways is do something where there is demand that's my main takeaway so uh, if there is demand, people will find you and will buy and you will see growth. If there is no demand, you cannot create that. Uh, and then if there is demand, then your next job is to make sure people know that you exist and you have certain services and make sure that people come back. So the service needs to be perfect. And uh, so in the in Zalora case, we focused a lot on making sure delivery was quick, on making sure that customer service will pick it up the phone in, uh, you know, very quickly, not like uh, traditional companies, on making sure that there were enough uh, different ways of paying so that everybody could uh, decide how to pay, including, for instance, cash and delivery, uh, making sure that uh, there was no perceived risk and therefore we had free returns. So all of these things, uh, I think, add up to build a product that was compelling enough for people to try it and hopefully for people to come back once they try it. And then the second piece was over time, focus a lot on building great assortment. So in the, this, you know, in the Zalora case was part specific to fashion but i believe that this is true in anything you do you know right now that i'm building a well a wealth management uh platform uh, the 99 percent of our for our focus is about building a product that is just superior to anything that is out there it's just the best product you can find because that's the way people will that's the way to push people to actually try it and hopefully like it and and come back yeah yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I, I came across, you know, an, a very interesting uh, TechCrunch article, which was dated April 2016. Um, there's a little bit of controversy around that. Um, you know how Zillora started losing um, some co-founders and managing directors. Um, uh, you don't have to give any kind of official statement if you don't want to, but very curious, what, what happened during that time when everything is going so well? What What happened? So first of all, I cannot give official statement. I'm not at Zalora anymore, so yeah. I, that I, 
not official. <laughs> That's my main disclaimer. Uh, but you know, no, but nothing, nothing happened. I mean, obviously, you know, the press always try to uh, kind of make things bigger than they are. Um, nothing happened. What uh, what we did is uh, a couple of years ago, um, in 2015, early 2015, we merged Zalora with other uh, five companies globally in a company called Global Fashion Group. Mm, um, yeah. And and that uh, and then obviously had an effect on the way that the structure of the company was and the operational process and the organizational chart, etc. Um, and uh, over time, uh, that changed the motivation of different people to stay with the company or not for the long term. Yeah. And yeah remember, also the company was started to be five years old, so there is a lot of people that have been there since the early days and, uh, and a few people left. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting, um, just to digress a little bit, because I was reading um, this book by Ben Horowitz called Hard Things About Hard Things. Have you heard of it? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's really interesting because he talks about how some early stage company, uh, early stage employees are not necessarily the best when the company starts scaling. So I, I can see how that can conflict a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is very this is very true. Honestly, in the Zalora case, I think that happened earlier because the scale up happened much faster than that. So, um, but it is definitely very true that the type of activities and skills of the first year, year and a half, are very different from the uh, type of activities and skills of the following two, three years, and or the following, uh, you know, uh, another three, four. Uh, and some people adapt, some others don't. And it's not just a question of skills; it's also a question of preference. Some people prefer the craziness of the early days to, you know, the more tidiness of uh, when uh, when things are scaling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's really interesting because um, you know you you worked um, in in investment banking and in private equity, and then you went on to Zerora. So over your transition through different periods, um, you never really started off necessarily in the early crazy parts of a business. But then I think in Stash Away, you you, I I guess you're pretty much starting off in the crazy aspects of, you know, starting very very early in the business. How is that experience going at the moment? It's fantastic. I'm uh, I'm I'm enjoying every little second of it. Uh, but yeah, you, you, so first of all, yes, you're right. I mean, stash away. Uh, I've found a company, so I've I've started in, even before the company existed, and uh, therefore it's a uh, it's a bit of a new experience. I had done part of this when I was at Rocket. So before Zalora, in my first year at Rocket, my responsibility was to launch new companies. Mm. So I've done the first six months for three companies in Italy and two in Pakistan. Sorry, uh, two, in, two, in, uh, two in Italy and three in Pakistan. And that that's something that I've done. So it's not a new thing, uh, but it's, uh, I have to say I'm enjoying it. It's, uh, as you mentioned, it's a little bit crazy, meaning there is a thousand things to do. Uh, and the teams obviously are, the team is obviously very, still small. Uh, and, and therefore everybody needs to do a lot of different things, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, you know, when you went to Singapore, you obviously went with an agenda in mind that is a managed Zalora group um, per se. But when you, how did you decide to start a company of your own in Singapore? What motivated you to actually make, I'm, I'm assuming that's a much bigger investment and a bigger decision, right? Because when you're part of a company, you have the option to return back uh, to Italy because you, you might think this stint is something that's coming to an end. But starting a new company in Singapore, what what was your thought process in actually making a much larger investment than what you might have considered before you went there? Look, um, I thought that there was a huge opportunity in uh, Asia for wealth management. I, th- I, as a customer of the wealth management industry over the last four years, I thought I was served very poorly and very expensively. And therefore I thought it was definitely a chance to uh, improve the quality of service and reduce the cost of the service for customers, not just for myself. Uh, And I looked around and I didn't find any company that was trying to do it. And so I thought it was a humongous opportunity. And uh, and I didn't really look at the fact that it was, you know, Singapore versus somewhere else. I was here in Singapore. Mm. uh, I discussed with with my wife the opportunity to stay here. So personally, from a family perspective, we were happy to stay. 
and uh, and professionally i thought it was uh it was a huge opportunity and uh, so the next step has been to try to find the right people to do to do this with and uh, i met my two co-founders nino and freddy uh, nino brings to the table uh, you know 12 years of experience building tech companies the cto of the company is a developer by training and spent all of his life building tech companies i'm not a tech person uh, and so he compliments me in that direction and and freddy uh, used to be the global head of derivative strategy for nomura he was a managing director there so he spent the last 10 years of his life uh, managing uh, portfolios across as a classic for institutional investors talking about billions and billions and uh and therefore when i met first nino and then freddy uh, we collectively thought that the three of us together had all the skills that were required to build a great company in the, in the, in the wealth management space. And that made me think that the risk was not so high because we had everything it takes to make it happen. And uh, so far, things have been going well. I see. I see. Very interesting. So what came first? Um, did the need to solve this problem came first or did um, you know, the option of moving on from Zelora came first? It was in parallel. So I was, uh, I was, uh, it was early, like, yeah, early to mid last year. So in the first part of last year, uh, where I was uh, starting to think about doing something different. And uh, one of the things I was looking at was uh, doing something entrepreneurial. And in the meantime, I had, uh, you know, I decided to dedicate a couple of weekends to solve my personal financial situation. And uh, and that's when I kind of. Again, I stumbled across the fact that there was no decent offering in this region of the world for uh, wealth management. And, uh, and that's when I thought, okay, maybe that's the answer to what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. But considering the fact that, you know, you, you invested four years of your life um, from 2012 to 2016 around e-commerce, um, didn't you ever consider that my core, ex- my core strength lies in e-commerce now as opposed to finance where you may not be as much in touch as you were? No. Uh, you know, I spent the first half of my career in and around finance and the second around building consumer internet companies. And I thought that this particular opportunity we are pursuing, which is improving wealth management for consumers, is at the crossroad of these two experiences. So there is a Obviously, a finance component, uh, and there, but there is also a consumer internet component, the ability to build products that are great for consumers using technology. And that's what we're doing. We're using technology to bring to everybody at $0 minimum balance, minimum balance a very sophisticated investment framework, the type of sophistication that usually institutional investors have access to not everybody and that's what we try to do and uh, i thought that my the two big experiences of my life were nicely merging on on this topic and that nino with his deep tech experience and friday with his deep asset allocation experience were further extending my experience on on both areas I see, I see, I see. So you weren't viewing your rocket internet experience necessarily in terms of um, e-commerce, but rather you were viewing it as a B2C experience, and that's the kind of experience you're carrying forward to Stashway. Okay. Yeah, you know, if I had to say one thing about my rocket experience is if only one thing, it would be about building and scaling companies. Now, then when you ask me to go into the details, then of course I learned a lot about B2C, and then maybe, you know, at a certain point I can tell you I also learned a lot about fashion and you know i learned a lot about inventory management which right now is useless in my current job but um but if i had to say one thing i've learned to launch and scale companies and i've done this in this region across this region in multi-countries i see i see very very interesting so yes i'm very eager to hear more about stash away sorry i kept you for so long from talking about your most passionate (laughs) project at the moment but yeah i would love to know a little bit more about stash away and i'm pretty sure people listening would love to know you know what what is stash away why is it different and and what kind of problems is it solving that that you thought would be valuable enough to be solved so stash away is a digital wealth management platform it's, uh, it's a robo-advisor in the lingo of the, of the industry for people that read about it. Uh, what the problem we are solving is we're trying to make it simple and cost-effective for anybody 
to invest their money intelligently. And when I say intelligently, I mean having, first of all, taking into consideration their uh, preferences and needs, in particular, what their goals are. So why are they saving and investing? Is that because they want to put away money for their retirement 30 years from now? Is that because they want to put away money for uh, their school, you know, school funds for their kids 10 years from now? Is that because uh, they want to buy a house three years from now? What is the reason why they're saving? Because that has an important effect on the type of portfolio that you should have. Secondly, it's intelligent in a way that the type of portfolios we built are built using very sophisticated asset allocation logic. As I mentioned earlier, that's the type of logic that you will find used by institutional investors. And we have discussed our investment framework with a few very, very, very senior people working at some of the largest uh, investors globally, and they were all very impressed. And in particular, they were very impressed by the fact that we're bringing that type of sophistication to the end customer for a $0 minimum fee, minimum balance, which means that anybody can start with $50, $100, $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, depending on what your possibilities are. Um, so this is the, the value proposition. The product is digital, obviously, and uh, you know, across devices and uh, um, and very simple to use, even if, it's, if I mention, as I mentioned, the, the engine underneath is, is complex. We try to be very transparent in everything we do. Uh, one obvious example is on fees. We charge fees that are a fraction of what people would pay to traditional advisors, being them the banks or what uh, the so-called independent financial advisors. And the difference is uh, quite impressive, meaning that we charge from 0.8% per annum for portfolios below $25,000 down to 0.2% per annum for portfolios above a million dollars. In comparison, uh, in this region, people pay somewhere between 25 and 4% per annum for you know by unit trust or life insurance or or whatever whatever product financial product they're buying uh we try to be transparent on uh, uh on everything else we do as well so for instance when if you go to the website there is a place called resources where you'll be able to find a white paper on our investment framework you'll be able to find another white paper that talks about how we select etfs uh, and uh, and and there is a you know uh, a lot of logic underneath on uh, why do we decide to buy ETFs from the New York Stock Exchange versus uh, some of the European markets where uh, even if for in some cases there is a tax disadvantage, but overall there is a fundamental advantage, uh, and we explain it mathematically and analytically. So we try to be very transparent and explain everything we do. Uh, and that I think is a big part of of the value proposition, and is a big part of the of the disruption we bring into the industry. Meaning that this is obviously a very different approach from the one taken by most traditional advisors of selling products where the the fine print on the fees uh, are very complex to understand or very difficult to find. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the space the, the space is you know ripe for a lot of disruption that that's happening around this area. Is is there something that makes your company very specific to, you know, operating only in Singapore APAC as you're starting off? Or is that only your starting point and everything you're doing is something that can easily scale anywhere in the world? So what we're doing can uh, can scale anywhere in the world. Our focus right now is Singapore, but we we founded a company with the ambition of making it multi multi country. I wouldn't I wouldn't tell you global right now. Mm-hmm. Our objective is as of now to launch in a few more countries around the region uh, and then and then we'll see what happens after that but you know for now the focus is on uh, singapore and the region around singapore yeah yeah how is the competition in this space at the moment it depends from uh, from the geography there are certain geographies the us and uh, and now europe as well where uh, competition is heating up meaning that there is quite a few players that are uh, trying to make investing easier, better, and, and, and more cost-effective. Uh, in uh, in Asia, it's still very early. So we are the first comp- the first company of this sort that actually uh, received a uh, license from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So this is obviously a regulated industry. Mm-hmm. And so there was nobody before us that actually had a license to do what we're doing. 
And but this is something that is developing very fast, and so there are you know for sure other people that will get a license and will will try to uh, to, to to go live. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's a barrier to entry for any any startup? You know, doing in the space, the financial regulation means you need to do some groundwork. You can't just decide to start up in a weekend or something. Uh, yes, that obviously makes it a bit more difficult. And uh, in fact, you know, in our case, we didn't launch uh, MVP after two weeks, two weeks, but rather took nine months to build a product that is really, really, really well done. In parallel, we've received our license so that we were able to uh, to go live. So yes, it's definitely it definitely makes the whole thing more difficult, and the type of capital required to even only go live much higher, and the type of responsibilities that the management team takes much higher. How would the how how is the attitude of the governments to such initiatives? Uh, maybe you can speak specifically about Singapore, and if you know other places in APAC, um, are the governments actually making space for such initiatives that could disrupt traditional financial institutions, which will obviously have an impact on the economy? Uh, so I guess, as you mentioned, that it depends from uh, geography to geography. What I can tell you is that the Singapore government and the Monetary Authority of Singapore have been very open to financial technology and financial innovation because they see this, that they think that the only way to make sure Singapore remains the capital of finance in this part of the world is to make sure that it embraces the, cha- the innovation and it becomes the capital of innovation as well. And I think that's a very forward-looking uh, way of, of, managing, of managing managing the industry. I understand that London is doing something similar, and I understand that a number of different uh, places are embracing innovation uh, quite, uh, quite openly. And I think it's the right thing to do. And innovation doesn't need to be carried on by, you know, disruptive startups. There is also, you know, the incumbents are taking advantage of innovation as well and that's the way it should be and i think the ultimately who wins is the customer which is exactly what should happen so if everybody has the incentive to create better product uh, that are more cost effective and that they uh that makes the customer's life easier and better and that that means that the regulator and the government are doing a nice job yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, London, London, as you mentioned, is doing is doing a bit. Um, so TransferWise, of course, is making some big waves, and then you, we have a few digital banks like Monzo and Starling Bank that are also starting to open up. So financial regulations and the whole area of fintech is actually starting to gain a lot more popularity. Uh, I'm from India, so of course, you know, I try to keep in touch with what's happening in the Indian market. I haven't seen that much in this space specifically but it's really interesting to see how Asia you know evolves in this area yeah absolutely absolutely and uh, and I guess I mentioned Singapore has been incredibly supportive of, of technological innovation in the finance sector over the last couple of years and um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to, uh, to to stay here and launch stash away here I think it's a perfect base to build a great company Interesting. Actually, Michele, I just realized that we have actually gone beyond the time that you initially promised. Do you do you still have five more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. No problem. Okay, great. So you did mention that um, you know you've been working on this for nine months. Um, how have you been managing the team and the salaries and and your own you know in, in investment and staying there? Have you received any kind of funding so far? Yes, we raised uh, 4.1 million Singapore dollars, which is uh, around uh, 2.7 million euros or 2.8 or 9 uh, US. Uh, We raised it in two tranches. One was an angel round in November, a couple of months after founding the company. uh, And one, which is obviously the larger part, the 3.3 out of the 4.1 million, uh, which we raised uh, around a month ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I I've kind of taken an approach that goes midway between the rocket approach and the, and the garage approach. So uh, um, I believe that there is a that especially in the industry where we are, uh, you need to build something that is very solid, where the fundamentals are super strong, and that's why from you know we decided to hire very to do everything in-house so the tech and the product is built all in-house by very experienced developers 
and uh, and and to get a full license like uh, the one I mentioned and to do all of these things all, all obviously it requires significant capital and that's why from uh, the very beginning it was clear to us uh, the three co-founders that we were going to uh, raise external capital uh, and that's what we've done yeah yeah I think I think it's very interesting because you know as you're talking about this it seems you had you had a clear structure in mind you had a clear idea of how you wanted to proceed uh, instead of you know figuring out your way and and get started and then figure out how to go about is all that experience of rocket internet and zero rise all that experience really helping you and all the contacts something that's really helped you as you formulated the structure and, uh, and the strategy of doing this yeah, definitely so. I think uh, the experience of the last five years has been very helpful in uh, in deciding how to make things happen. And uh, uh, you know, Nino, who's uh, one of my two co-founders, also has done several startups before this one. And so the combination of my and his experience on building new companies have been very helpful over the last uh, nine months in deciding, you know, who to hire, how to hire, when to hire. Uh, how to how to how to plan things, etc., uh, etc. Et some some things we don't even think about; it comes second nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How much of you know? How much of your MBA um, do you think has contributed towards your thought process into doing what you're doing at the moment? Look, my MBA changed my professional and personal life. I would say more than I originally expected. So, if you ask me before I before going to the MBA what are you going to do after this? I would have probably told you, look, I'm going to come back to McKinsey in Italy and I may, you know, become a partner at McKinsey in Italy. And uh, in reality, as I mentioned earlier, and as, as you now know, obviously things went a little bit differently and um, uh, and the MBA contributed very strongly in it because first of all, after the MBA, I stayed in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me connect the dot to, to what I mentioned earlier. So, and in New York... McKinsey, New York, in one of my projects, I met the person I mentioned earlier that later introduced me to Rocket. And then, uh, and so without meeting her and having the international exposure that the MBA, the Columbia, uh, gave me, I don't think it would have been pos- possible to, uh, you know, meet Rocket at a certain point in my life. And, uh, and then Rocket brought me to Singapore as, uh, through Zalora, as I mentioned earlier. And then I met Nino, for instance, through the same person. So again, it was a connection done in New York after my MBA that uh, that led me to uh, to meet one of my two co-founders. So is what I said at the beginning is the is the connecting dots logic of uh, of, of Steve Jobs. Um, the MBA had a humongous impact on my professional and personal life, uh, mainly because of the international exposure that it gave me. And mainly because of the type of people that I met along the way that uh, helped me, you know, learn new things, meet new, meet other people, and uh, and get going. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be honest, I've spoken to so many people for this show as well, and I think yours is actually one of the most inspiring stories of you know what an MBA could do, because a lot of people keep talking about that it's not just you know, the educational bit of what you do, MBA, but the network and how you move and how you take decisions from there. Like, you know, being at the right place at the right time is is something that's been said a lot. But I think in your case, it's it's really, you know, come true in such a nice manner that you've just placed yourself in positions where the opportunities have been presented to you and you have been, you've been smart enough to grab them, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the jury's still out, so let's talk about <laughs> it for now, and uh, I'll tell you how things have gone. <laughs> Fair enough. At least so far. It's looking, it's looking, it's looking quite positive so far. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely, absolutely. But look, but to, to your point, uh, seriously, it, if you ask me what is, is uh, knowledge the one thing you took away from your MBA, I would say no. Uh, I think, yes, I did study I learned something, but that's not what my focus was, and it's not what I remember about my MBA. What I remember about my MBA is the the fact that it opened my mind uh, on uh, on a number of topics. Uh, first of all, by being in New York and therefore being in a, the center of the world in uh, in many senses, and uh, secondly, by being exposed and being you know spending all my time with my fellow MBA students coming from a variety of different 
personal background, professional backgrounds, and and countries. Uh, and that's, I think, what really uh, helped me think, broadened my mind, and and uh, and then and I think that has an effect on what what happened after that, on on the way that I decided to stay in New York, and on the way that at a certain point I decided to accept an offer to go to Singapore or to Pakistan. All of those things come from an open mind that was probably opened also through uh, through the MBA exposure. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I'm going to name this episode as, you know, open minds and epiphany moments. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the flip side, you know, if you're looking back, uh, are there any decisions you would have taken differently knowing what you know right now? Uh, look, probably not. I Meaning I'm very happy where I am, so probably not. Uh, if there is one thing I would I would like to do more and better and I I never managed to do well is uh, making sure I I keep in touch and I dedicate enough time to uh, uh, kind of re-engaging people I met along the way. The reality is that uh, life is always very busy and uh, and unfortunately uh, I haven't been great at continuously uh, keeping uh, all relationships going and all friendships going and uh, I think that's something that uh, obviously I could be better at. And But overall, there's not much I can regret. Yeah, you know, that that's one aspect even I need to get better at. So, yeah, thanks again for reminding me. <laughs> and, you know, just a last question, Michele. I know I've kept you far beyond the time. Um, you know, wh- what is the one question you wish I asked you? Mm. Well, uh, given that we are talking about MBA, um, I would say, you know, uh, I don't know, tips for people approaching MBAs or uh, tips for people that are considering going to MBA because that's actually a question that I received often, uh, you know, on one-on-one settings. So that's maybe maybe an area where cool. we can spend a couple of minutes. Yeah, sure. So what, what are some of your tips uh, for those approaching MBA? So first of all, I don't think there is an answer that fits everything, meaning that experience of people going to the MBA tends to be very different. And uh, one thing is if you've studied business at university and then you have worked in a bank or a consulting company or in a strategic role in a company, that is one profile that is very different from somebody that maybe is an artist and decides to go to an MBA. And those two people should look at it in very different ways because the first one uh, will probably not benefit too much from the pure curriculum, but will benefit mostly from the exposure to different to different people and different uh, and different way of looking at the world. While the second one will also uh, benefit a lot from the curriculum. So I think first of all, there is no one answer fit all. It depends where you are in life, what you want to do, if you want to change industry if you want to stay in the same industry and uh, the relevance of an MBA is very different to different people one tip one thing I always say is if you decide to go to an MBA go to a top school I I do not think that it makes sense to invest money and time unless you really get top-notch education which also means top-notch colleagues and top-notch network Uh, the second point is If you decide to go to an MBA, my general recommendation is spend as much time as you can trying to focus on your development as a person and therefore spend time meeting with people, spend time asking people about their decisions and spend time meeting with yourself, spend time looking inside yourself and spend time thinking about where you want to be. 5, 10, 15 years down the line, even if obviously you'll change mind 15 times and you'll actually be somewhere else. But just the process of going through that thinking is very, very relevant. And I think the MBA is a perfect perfect environment to actually have uh, the time and the um, uh, stimulus to actually look look at those things. And, uh, And lastly, one thing that I underestimated before joining the MBA is the value of what I call the soft skill courses. So Italy is a very hard skill type of university uh, and school setting in general, so where people study hard uh, and, uh, and, and only hard topics. Uh, while I, if I have to tell you what are the courses that I appreciated the most of my MBA that I think that actually shaped me the most are the soft skills one. And therefore, I would uh, recommend 
to everybody to get a fair share of soft skill courses because those are the ones that are more difficult to uh, to get elsewhere. You can always buy a book and learn uh, discounted cash flow by yourself. It's more difficult to, uh, to to learn by yourself soft skills. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. These these are great points. Um, regarding your second point in terms of you know spending time learning a lot more about um, the motivations and the learnings and people's experiences. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a shameless plug, um, um, but you know, listening to the podcast, the reason I say that is because that's the main motivation of bringing in people from different experiences and asking them, you know, after five or ten years after they finish the MBA, because it shortcuts your learning a little bit in terms of understanding how people made their decisions while making their decisions, and you know, more often than not when you're considering doing your MBA, you may not always nail down 100% of what you want to do. Sometimes life takes, you know, funny turns that you don't expect, uh, especially in the case of Michele, as, as you've seen, it's, it's very different. But at least having some idea gets you to focus on something. The ideas will change, they will evolve, but at least something to begin with is a great starting point. And, and the third point, of course, is soft skills. And that's something that people have brought up so often, you know. The soft skills is something that's very underestimated, but it's probably one of the most valuable learnings that you can actually take out of the MBA. <laughs> uh, Michaela, that, that was fantastic. Uh, thanks a lot for your time. Really, really appreciate it. It's, you're, you're in Singapore. It's beyond 10 p.m. on a Sunday night for you. You know, really appreciate your effort in coming over here. No worries. Thank you very much for your time and uh, hope everybody goes to stashaway.sg and uh, test the product and uh, give us comment, uh, if any, or, uh, you know, hopefully becomes a happy customer. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've signed up to your waiting list. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to test it as well. I'm not in Singapore, so I don't know if I can test it. You can. I can? You can. Everybody can. Yes. Oh, perfect. Great. So I'm, I'm looking forward to when it's live as well. Um, just a last point, uh, Michele, if people want to know more about you, okay, they can go to Stash Away, but if they want to contact you, is there an easier way for them to learn more about you personally and, and if they can contact you? LinkedIn is, uh, is usually a good tool. I try to reply to everybody that gets in touch with me. It's becoming more and more difficult, to be honest, but I've tr- I try to reply to everybody. Perfect. Great. And, you know, people, if you want to get in touch with Michele, you can always email me at avinash at thembajam.com. I'm more than happy to run it past Michele if he's happy to hear from you. And then you can take it forward from there. Perfect. Michele, thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Avinash. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The MBA Jam. Now it's time for you to take action. Head over to the MBAJam.com to listen to more episodes and discover great resources.